Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Stephen Moriarty, very fetchingly dressed in a uh, what appears to be a green <laughs> bintang singlet, or at least maybe it's a VB. But how's it going over there, Stephen? Good, mate. Good. We're sort of getting seriously into summer. I think it's about thirty degrees, and it's the first day where it hasn't rained in about five days. So I've actually got the aircon on and glass of wine in hand. So um, looking forward to summer and swimming and taking it easy a little bit. Yeah, the one thing about Brisbane I always remember is that certainly through January, the temperature gauge might say one thing, but it can, yeah. feel, <laughs> can feel like double. Today we're going to cover off, it's essentially a 2021 in review podcast, look at what's happened with the economy, with the stock market, investment valuations, and so on. And then we're going to have a look at the outlook for 2022. And as always, applied the eight timeless principles to the current environment. So, Steve, it's been a heck of a, a year or two, a couple of key lessons or reminders, I guess, more than anything, the difficulty with making predictions because, um, well, we've seen uh, some real whipsawing in terms of economic activity. We had a shutdown followed by very much a go-slow period for the economy in 2020. Then things reopened and then, in Q3 this year, Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra were all locked down. Basically, half the economy shut, half the population unable to travel without restriction. And now things half reopening again. So I guess you look at all that and say, well, it would be pretty difficult to make accurate forecasts about what's going to happen. Look, I, I, I was just thinking this morning, Pete, it's, I was talking to a client, you know, and, and we were talking about March 2020 which is, you know, that's like 18 months ago, and it, it feels like it was a blip. I think if, if you can take a lesson out of this year and also last year is that it's really blown apart a lot of the ideas that the stock market and the economy are actually, you know, intimately linked. You um, actually, well, you must have preempted the scribbles that I've written here because the, uh, the first point that I've actually written down is... Um, Stocks are not the economy, which I guess we kind of knew. And it's certainly one of the things we talk about in our eight principles is that very often when things seem to be at their lowest end, that's the best time to invest and vice versa. But I mean, if there was ever any doubt that the uh, the stock market and the economy are closely tethered or linked, well, I guess the last couple of years has shown how flawed that can be, albeit markets are forward looking, of course. It's an interesting one, Pete, because I, you know, I tend to take statements with a bit of a grain of salt these days. And what I do, which is what you're talking about with prediction, is sort of say, okay, well, if if that's a prediction based on a general 
conclusion, you know, like, well, Steve, you know, everyone knows the stock market's connected to the economy. I tend to say, all right, well, let's have a look and see if there's any evidence for that. And, and what we've found is the last two years is stock markets, particularly the US, has gone crazy and the economies have been in an absolute, not, not a shambles, but there's there's been, you know, like serious chaotic events. We've got supply side stuff. We've got inflation. We got, you know, what was our last GDP report down 3.9 or something? You know, so you you sort of look at that and say, well, hang on, the stock markets have actually risen. How can you honestly say there's a there's a fundamental argument that it's tethered to the real economy? It just doesn't really, even if you said, oh yeah, but Steve, you know, the companies are bouncing back and that sort of stuff, it's still an argument to say, well, I understand that but it just doesn't really make any rhyme or reason. It's interesting because my, my Facebook uh, flashed up uh, today, uh, unless I'm still logged into this, uh, to that hell site, uh, but it flashed up a <laughs> reminder, you know, three years ago you were doing this and it it was a, a photo of an event I spoke at in Sydney, Devils and Details uh, Business Insider event. I was thinking, oh, pretty interesting to consider then what were people saying including myself, because I was on stage, yeah. uh, three years ago. And you think, okay, well, that was December 2018. I think the stock market was at, uh, the Aussie stock market was at about 5,700 or something of that nature for the SX200. There was uh, all of the issues ongoing with the credit squeeze, the Banking Royal Commission. And, you know, but then you look at what's happened since then, you know, with the, the Royal Commission finished, we had the surprise election result, we've had um, all of the stuff with Trump in the U.S., has uh, kind of come and gone. And then we had, um, as you mentioned, from early 2020, we had a global pandemic, which nobody predicted, obviously, and then big shutdown and things reopened. And it's like, well, even in the space of three years, it's kind of rendered a lot of those predictions um, well, completely uh, useless, I guess. Um, you know, the interest rates haven't followed the expected trajectory. Uh, markets have been crazy. Um, so, and as you covered off in numerous podcasts before the remedy really is that to have a systematic approach that doesn't rely on trying to predict what's just around the corner and allocating your investments sensibly and a big focus on valuations because uh, I guess you can never really predict what's going to happen in the economy but you can at least research what kind of returns have been appropriate from various points in the cycle and valuation so let's talk a bit about what's happened to the stock market. I think um, a review of 2021 would probably uh, basically show that the market's up, um, I guess at the time of recording, near enough 10%. But I think if you look at it in a slightly broader context, um, the the market, uh, for the ASX anyway, I guess it rose from uh, mid fives, as I mentioned, three years ago, got up to above 7,000. Then it got absolutely smoked down to uh, somewhere in the fours during the original shutdown, and that's rebounded. At the time of speaking, it's back above 7,000. So it's been an interesting couple of years, basically a very strong return since the bottom at uh, around March 2020. I'm just looking at a, a tweet before where um, I don't know the fellow, but he tweeted out that, you know, this month it had gone down 0.3 and um, in 10 years it had done 167%. And in 25 years... It had delivered seven hundred and seventy percent, right? So, so, and I sort of just looked at it, and went, well, in 25, 25 years, seven hundred and seventy percent. This is the ASX. 
That's a roughly an average of about 30% per year. But as Gareth Brown, who we interviewed on the podcast earlier, pointed out, that's a compound return of about 9% per year. My point being, and I, I you know, I, I always bang on about this and people probably get bored with me saying it, but it always depends on where you start and where you finish. You can't just say, oh, the market went up 10% because there's people who have made 20 and 30 and 40 and 50, and there's other people who have lost 20 and 30 and 40 and 50, and that's your average of 10. And I, I apply that to the longer-term stuff as well by saying, well, the 25 years, I'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's made 770%. But my, my point being that, you know, and this gets back to what you were saying just before, Pete, it's at about, I think it's about 7.3 or 7.4 or something, that's what it was in 2007. It depends when you look at your dates to determine your return. And that's why, you know, you and I talk about having a systematic approach because if you're a believer in buy and hold, well, the argument is, well, you haven't gone anywhere in 14 years. Now, people, and we've said this before, you know, oh, yeah, but Steve, people will put money in, you know, dollar cost averaging. And it's like, well, yeah, I understand that. But that still doesn't mean there's a great, you know, you just plonk money into the stock market and there you go, bringo, 770% in 25 years. You yeah, know, I think as we've, said, as we've said before, I guess in one way, shape or form, everybody's a market timer of sorts. Mm. You know, now mm. your, your approach might be, I just, I'm not going to even try and I'm just going to drip feed money into the market and that's valid. But yeah, as you said, I mean, you know, if you were looking at an investment in the prop, property market or in cryptocurrencies, you're not going to look at it and say, yeah, I'll wait till the market hits the uh, the highest valuation in history and then I'll, that'll be the yeah. time, right? Yeah. And, you know, I guess um, as a Brit, you know, I've got some first-hand experience here of uh, a stock market that goes nowhere for over 20 years, which the FTSE has managed to achieve with a couple, well, I guess three big drawdowns since um, the tech bubble. And yeah. the, the, the index is, is back to where it was, you know, uh, 20, 21 years ago. Uh, obviously, you know, various points have been good times to buy, other times, uh, particularly around the dot-com era, uh, very expensive. So before we come on to actually talk about valuations today, you mentioned that the US market, so that's really been the big point of focus for a lot of uh, commentary. And as as you always say, it's the elephant in the room because the US kind of drives the the sentiment and direction of markets around the world. Uh, So Mm -hmm. the... um, downturn in the US, uh, as you mentioned, into March 2020, when the S&P was back to around 2,500. Well, that's it's almost like a distant memory, the way things have gone since then. Yeah, it just seems to me, Pete, that we, we the investment world, I think, as you get further and further into a bull market, which gets more and more euphoric, you forget any sense of a downturn, you know, and so... The the reason why I say that is because 18 months ago, the stock market fell 35% in a month, right, which is an enormous, you know, that's that's like a one-off event, right, and suddenly it bounced back 35% and everybody charged on again. And to me, that just sort of indicates the era from a macro point of view that we're in, you know, that it's, it's just, look, in my 58 years, I just can't remember seeing it when it's this crazy across the board. And what I mean is in, you know, US properties going crazy, uh, US stocks are crazy, there's cryptocurrency, um, there's NFTs, you know, like 
you just look at everything and also look at the volatility in it. You know, lumber prices, iron ore prices, petrol, what do they call it? You know, oil prices. You just look at, and the volatility in it is enormous. It's, you know, even though it's positive overall, the volatility where the swings, the daily swings in like iron ore prices. I mean, you track it more than I do. Iron ore was what, 200 bucks or something, you know, like eight months ago or something. Is that right? Uh, very recently, it was uh, well above 200. Then it fell back down to 90, and now it's leveled out at around 100. But yeah, I, I think um, the commodity prices can do that. You know, uh, they can shift around very quickly, particularly depending on what's happening in China. Very uh, timely there, what you said, because when I look at the front page of the Fin Review today, top two articles. So, firstly, uh, Charlie Munger, who I believe is now 97. So, I guess yeah. you know, what, what he hasn't seen. Uh, probably isn't worth seeing or whatever the phrase yeah. is. So the headline yep. is um, crypto and stocks are crazier than the dot-com era. John Shapiro, the article, legendary investor Charlie Munger said levels of excess in the stock market are crazier now than they were in the dot-com era. He also doubled down on his disdain cryptocurrencies while praising China's effort to stamp out excessive speculation. And he said, um, yeah, he's not keen on the crypto world. But interesting comment here. He says the dot-com boom was crazier on the valuations even than we have now. But overall, I consider this era even crazier than the dot-com era. Then second article, uh, second lead article in the fin says it's time to rethink Berkshire Hathaway, too conservative, and that's holding the company back. So some interesting uh, markers there for where we may be in the market cycle, don't you think? I was thinking before, just before we came on, you know, I was just thinking about what we're going to chat about and the review and stuff, and I just thought you and I have talked about oil stocks and, you know, last year, and and, and I think it's fair to say we've done very well of them. Um, we've talked about tobacco stocks, you know, with great dividend yields and those sorts of things. But you think about it, Pete, every, every bubble economy or every bubbly sort of stock market, if I can put it that way, has to have a theme. And it can never be something that's old. You know, like what we've got now is NFTs, you know, unicorns, uh, companies that don't make any money, software as a service, you know, robots and drones, all that sort of stuff. But what I'm saying is you've never had a book, you know, like you've never had a bubble market in tobacco stocks, right, or consumer staples, right, because they're, they're old. And there's no, you know, imagine trying to sell tobacco stocks. I mean, it's just impossible, right? But it's really easy to sell, you know, NFTs or cryptocurrency because it's new. And so one of the one of the things I always look at in in every market is always saying what's the dominant sort of you know theme. And in this one, it's it, in that way it does reflect two thousand. Because it's 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 all about technology, and so again, because it's a new story, that's can what ge- that's what can generate new money, or get you know, sorry to use the phrase, but more suckers into the market. Because you you know you try and you try and sell a guy who's twenty five, not on crypto, but on tobacco stocks or you know the consumer staples. It'd be like, yeah, no, thanks, mate. You know, let's move along. So in that way, I think. Charlie Munger's right, but as you, as your second article shows, no one's listening to the old coot. 
right? Because <laughs> they're all making they're all making money out of NFTs. So it's like, oh goddamn Berkshire. Oh who you know who's Warren Buffett? I mean, yeah. you know, they're all talking about Elon Musk and stuff. So you you see this in and this is the benefit of age. You see it in every cycle. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost echoes of Buffett at Sun Valley, and near enough being booed yeah, off stage in the absolutely. Tank, tank Let's have a think about the sectors then. So, um, I guess what you're saying there is it. Um, if you looked at when well the oil prices effectively went to zero, there were some very cheap stocks. I mean, the energy was actually the worst performing sector 2018, 2019, and yep. 2020. 2020, a huge, basically a drawdown of about a third. Uh, but then in the first half of 21, energy was the top performing sector, 46% uh, for the US S&P 500 uh, sector. But actually, most things uh, bounced some sectors a lot less than others. But I think, um, as you said, I guess the point is that you're buying companies and sectors with a long uh, time frame, big dividend yields, uh, relatively, it's a more traditional value style of investment. But what's uh, really been the theme of the last few years. Well, if you look at the top performing sector, 2019, it was basically IT and tech, uh, 50% returns. And then despite everything happening in 2020, same again in 2020, uh, you know, 44% returns uh, mm. for the uh, information technology index and the S&P 500. So I guess the um, interesting thing then to look at the the NASDAQ composite, and we, we look back to uh, the tech bubble years, which didn't actually last as long when you look back at it in hindsight. You know, there was a huge run-up for, for a year or two, uh, but mm. I guess the, the Nasdaq spent a lot of time, you know, around about the 1-2,000 level before it suddenly went absolutely mad up to around 4,000 and then went all the way back down again. Uh, but today, the Nasdaq uh, composite is above 15,000, so the bubble looking pretty small in Hindsight, what do you think about? Because um, you mentioned that the Nasdaq, there's an awful lot of companies these days that don't make any money. A lot of them don't have any real prospects of making any profit, uh, and also particularly that index being driven by just a very narrow, uh, well, handful of stocks really. Some of which we've all already touched on, being the, uh, you know, the uh, the Facebooks and Amazons of the world. Um, is that a um, an argument for saying that? companies can be more profitable with fewer staff because of technology, or do you think it's just simply an overvaluation? If you look at general statistics in terms of companies, the long-term PE average is about 15. So, you know, you can argue, of course, quite rightly, that Amazon is an old company, old-ish, so to speak, and it's, you know, overdone that. But there is also an argument that says no company that has ever sustained a PE over 100, which is, you know, in itself is a bit of a feat. Um, I can't remember what Tesla is, but I think it's at like a PE of 500 or something. What happens every cycle and every bull market, particularly at the top, is um, you and I have discussed this, the narrative follows the price. And what we do is instead of saying, listen, these people have lost their bloody minds Quite frankly, they're all just in there speculating on the latest, you know, the latest bloody Rivian or, you know, all these bullshit companies that don't own anything, don't actually do anything, but they're on a promise of electric vehicles or a promise of, you know, cryptocurrency, those sorts of things. I think that, again, is what you see at the top of every market. And the argument is always saying, 
okay, well, maybe this time is different. But if you work through, Pete, like you say, there's hardly a fundamental argument for any of those companies. You know, like <laughs> I saw one tweet where some, pardon the French, but some dickhead said Tesla was going to be worth $40 trillion. I mean, you know, like you look at it and go, mate, the global economy is only about 80 or 90 last time I checked. So you know what I mean? Like what you do is you get, it gets so carried away that a lot of people who are mid-level investors, and what I mean like that is they're not beginners, but nor are they, you know, the older investors start to get that point of view of saying, well, gee, you know, maybe it is different this time. And the longer it goes on, the more you tend to sort of go, well, gee, you know, maybe it is different. But if you take it back to basic economics, you see that it, it, it can't be different. You know, it, it just can't go on forever because that's not the way that the economics of business works. And, and perversely, the best businesses that Warren Buffett has bought and the best stocks like tobacco are really boring. You know, they're not, they're not tech stocks or Amazon and stuff like that. They're really boring things like tobacco stocks or consumer staples or Buffett buying Visa or MasterCard. And, again, it always gets back to the thing that I say to people, it's the price you pay. You know, like airlines are fantastic. My God, what a revolution. But they're the shittiest investment you could ever get because they're in a crappy competitive world and it doesn't matter if they're sexy. The question is, what's the price you're going to pay and what's the return you're going to get? And you don't want to be fooled by thinking that, you know, Elon Musk may well do well out of Tesla. But when you look at history, he's really pushing up against it when he's, you know, he's taking on people like Toyota, GM, you know, people who have had 150 years experience. I mean, it's a, it's a tough gig for him. Yeah, I'd say uh, around um, Europe, there's more electric vehicles coming onto the market. Uh, let's um, have a think uh, before we come on to the eight principles and how to position um, as an investor. Let's just think about what. So, what do you think about the outlook for the economy? Obviously, we've had a shutdown in Australia, uh, but the government in Australia has put in place one of the biggest stimulus packages, certainly as you measure as a sort of a share of the economy, one of the biggest in the developed world. So households have piled up a big sort of war chest of cash. So, I mean, I'm relatively speaking quite optimistic for household spending and unemployment in Australia. I guess the thing is, at the moment, the disruption looks set to continue for a long time to come because, yes, Australia's done very well with the virus, but other countries haven't. So travel is going to be very difficult mm. for the next couple of years it's going to be a lot of disrupting factors about return to the office and Christmas parties and all the rest of it so what do you think about the economy and um, so we've talked about the US stock market valuation but what do you think we can expect for the um, markets in 2022 as well I'm, I'm hearing more volatility but what do you think yeah, um, now we're going to make predictions. <laughs> yeah. Everybody else can't do it, but we can. Um, but generally, I think, I think, and we talked about this with Con uh, Michalakis a few, uh, probably a couple of months ago now. I think, Pete, it's going to be one of those eras, a little bit like 1964 to 1981, where the economy will do really well, but the stock market won't. 
And the reason why is because my argument is over the last 30 years, capital, if I can use that for, you know, as a, or use business owners as a proxy, right, people who have got assets have absolutely killed it. The poor old worker hasn't done very well. I think we're on the cusp of changing that. And I think partly one of the things that may happen is if you've got uncertainty, a business won't invest, right? Why would I spend lots of millions of dollars if demand is going to fluctuate with, you know, interruptions like COVID and stuff, right? So I think what will happen, and I'm, look, I'm probably wrong, but I'm just throwing it out there. I think what may happen, Pete, is we will get periods of raging inflation because there will be there will be disruptions like we've got now with Omicron, and then it'll go away, and they'll go right. Okay, everything's going to go back to normal. Then we'll get another another thing, and they'll go, oh shit. Well, you know, let's not invest because we'll wait for it to look to you know business want certainty. So you've got that coupled with environmental regulations, which are, I think are going to be ramped up big time, you're going to see a bigger role for government. And I'm talking over the next, you know, probably five to 20 years. So perversely, Pete, what I, I personally think will happen is workers will do better over the next five or 10 years, but the stock market, because they're overvalued, actually may not do as well. You know what I mean? Like generally everybody will be feeling a little bit safer because they'll be earning more money, but the stock market won't be as dynamic. And the reason why I say that is because this is a personal opinion, but the reason why lots of people are speculating in property and stocks and NFTs is because there's no pathway for you to have a stable income over 30 or 40 years. And so you're forced to speculate even younger because, you know, you, you look at the job market and you think, well, Jesus, if I don't make it soon, I'm going to be, you know, I won't get on the property ladder. Oh, geez, I won't be able to buy stocks. So everybody is really speculating, trying to get rich, not because they're greedy, but because we want security. You know, we want to know that there's a bit of a pathway there. And I think that's a, a come about because the last 20 years or even longer, you know, it's been a really uncertain time in a lot of countries. And even people now who, you know, talk about the gig economy, you know, they're not earning a lot of money, even though they're employed and their employment is really sort of tenuous. Um, I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day who's a psychologist and I said, oh, you know, I'm sort of rather shocked at people's fragility in terms of mental health with the COVID stuff and the lockdowns. And she said to me, Stephen, you've got no idea how hard it is out there for a lot of people who, you know, are really living pay packet to pay packet. And she said, so when there's an opportunity, even though it might be a 500 to one shot, people try and take it because they think, well, it's, you know, I'm probably not going to be worse off. I might as well go and do a, you know, an afterpay investment or speculate on an NFT because, you know, that I only need one good hit and I make it. So I think in terms of opportunities, I think the stock market may be really volatile, but I still think there's opportunities out there for investors, particularly, again, in like, you know, commodities or hard assets if we get inflation. 
I think there's I think we'll get performance in sectors such as consumer staples. Like, you know, I think we'll go back to the boring stocks, not the sexy stuff, because we've had five years or 10 years of the sexy stuff. And once people get their fingers burnt, they're not going to want to go back to those stocks again. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, as you mentioned, I think things like uh, punting money on uh, a brand new currency or cryptocurrency mm. or NFT. I mean, it, it's a bit like you know buying lottery tickets and all the rest of it. And look, if I was twenty years old, I'd probably be doing exactly the same. It, it's much yeah. more difficult when you know you've got a, a larger net worth as you go into your sort of middle years, and then. You know, you can't really be affording to take big drawdowns. So you've got to take a more systematic and sensible approach as you get to my stage in life. You've got family commitments and so on. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think you're right. I mean, it could be an interesting time for commodities because they've had a tough decade. Um, I think governments, are, well, they, they are investing a lot and spending a lot. Um, I think uh, things like consumer staples and energy, they're certainly uh, sectors that, Will probably be consistent, but um, there's potentially some. Well, there's a there's potentially a lot of risk in some of the uh, the, the tech and financials uh, space. And um, I think, as we've talked about on previous podcasts, there's a number of emerging markets that are relatively much cheaper. Mm. But then you look at um, the US market, and it just gives you, I suppose, an overall sense of caution because, um, as you said just before, if you look at the sort of long run average for price earnings ratios and you know, trailing PEs and the CAPE ratio and all pretty much any measure you choose to look at, we're absolutely miles above the long run average. And even if yeah. uh, we don't revert completely to the mean, there's still a lot of downside uh, sort of air pockets there to worry about. Um, so let's go back to the eight timeless principles then. Difficult market when it's so expensive in the US. So let's just run through the eight principles. So systematic yep. approach. Um, so I flick to you, the uh, the original creator of the eight timeless principles. What do we do uh, to make sure we stick to a system at a time when the market's so expensive? I think it's about, you know, stick to what you know. And the big money is always made by betting against the crowd or not running with the crowd. And again, Templeton said, you you make superior returns by not, you know, doing what everybody else is doing. And that, that takes a certain amount of backbone and bravery. But if you've got a systematic way of investing, that you've got to stick with that approach. You know, you re- remember Warren Buffett's been systematically investing for 80 years. He's never veered and he's generally made a bucket load of money. And I'm, it takes me to Stanley Druckenmiller, who, you know, again recently was sort of saying in 1999 he sold out, had made money, Waited, watched tech stocks close, you know, go absolutely parabolic and couldn't help himself. And so got back in again and then promptly lost, I think it was like, I think he said 300 million or something, you know. And he, he said, I knew what I was doing. You know, the guy said, What did you learn? And he said, I knew what I was doing was wrong. Look, I'm not saying, oh, you know, what a breeze. It's always hard to do. But if you've got a method that works, don't push it, you know, because as you and I say, Pete, the, the, you make money in investing by not losing money. If you miss out on some returns, so what? There's going to be, you know, there's going to be market cycles in the future, and you'll be able to take advantage of those. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? Take a step back because when everybody around you is making money, you think, oh, I've got to get in now. I've got to get yeah, in because yeah. I'll, I'll miss the opportunity. It's like, okay, well, let's uh, look at the average. Uh, 
or median life expectancy. If you mm. get to our kind of age in life, you know, you, you should be expected to live till 85 or maybe longer, yes. who knows? So the idea that there'll never be another opportunity is completely stupid. Um, you know, especially these days when you can invest globally, these opportunities come around all the time. So you don't need to uh, pile in at the top to try and uh, squeeze out the last few percent. Um, I think, mm. as you mentioned, a lot of the narratives at the moment, you know, got some of the stuff that people send me about, uh, yeah, how the world has completely changed and everything's different and da da da. And of course, you know, every cycle is different, but uh, the narratives are uh, almost out of control at the moment. So, uh, yeah. next principle mean reversion. Um, so, I guess the thing with mean reversion is you never know when it's going to happen, but we just know from um, hundreds of years of or decades and decades of data that eventually mean reversion does kick in. You just don't know when. You know, it's really the first law of market. And if you think about it, it's it's really quite simple. Nothing goes on forever because, and that's why you sort of talk, I think you and I talked about this a couple of months ago, you know, like if if there's no mean reversion, well, what that means is prices are relevant because whenever you buy, you'll just make money, right, because it never reverts. It just stands to reason. And as you pointed out just then, you don't know when it's going to happen, right? But you, And so the longer the bull market goes on, the more like Stanley Druckenmiller, you sort of go, oh, man, you know, like I must be wrong. It's definitely not going to mean revert. It is different this time. You jump in and then, the you know, and then it crashes. So mean reversion is pretty straightforward. As I said, the Cape's at 40, right? Well, even if it doesn't mean revert, Cape says you're going to get about 2% per year. Well, if inflation's running at three or four, well, you know, you're going backwards. So even if it doesn't go anywhere, you're still not going to be making a lot of money. Yeah, actually, I think um, reading uh, people like advisor perspectives, and they say the same thing, even mm. if you look at a 20-year Cape ratio, um, yes. and you might be saying, all right, well, expected returns might be 2 to 4%, which is all well and good, but... You might say, well, 2 to 4% is fine with me, but the problem is not that. The problem is that when valuations are so high, the risk of you losing big is um, substantially higher because of the, the mean reversion. I guess you're much better off to be conservative and just wait for a, a better opportunity. Um, I think actually just to go back to the, the, the Munger article that I mentioned before, I mean, he actually said in there, you've got to remember that companies – need to have a durable competitive advantage because if that gets eroded over time, you know, there goes the profit. And the problem is that even some of the great companies, like if you pay too much, I mean, he quotes the example of Kodak, basically led the world for a long time. But over the long run, your, your shareholders' claim went to zero. So I think, um, yeah, a couple of important points. And I'm hearing an awful lot about, you know, people where you just throw your money into um, a cryptocurrency or an NFT and look, that, you know, for sure, I'm not saying, you know, prices can go higher. There's, there's almost, you know, you print a lot of stable coins or whatever. Of course, prices can go higher. You've just got to remember that if somebody becomes a millionaire through uh, investing in a, a cryptocurrency, the money to pay that person out has got to come from somewhere. And the, yeah, the only yeah. place it can come from is new people coming in. So, uh, yep. yeah, I, I guess uh, mean reversion, um, obviously, is a critical principle. Um, so, Let's go on to number three, personality. So I guess, well, it's been an interesting couple of years uh, about to learn about oneself because we've had probably the biggest amount of uncertainty I can ever remember, I think, in early 2020 when we basically had the economy shut down. 
uh, the, where we were in Noosa, they taped off the playgrounds. You couldn't go to the beach. And it was like, well, gee, where's, what happens now? <laughs> like, we didn't mm. really have a playbook to follow. Um, and I guess you learn a lot about your uh, temperament in an environment like that. Yeah, I think that the particularly, as you say, the last two years, you know, we generally talk about that in terms of investing. You know, did you learn anything about investing, about patience and stuff? But as you're saying there, the COVID stuff has really been an absolute shock. As I said to you before, you know, I'm quite surprised about the fragility of people in terms of mental health. You know, I'm like other people. I live in an apartment. I've got two kids and I had lockdown. Now, we were lucky in Queensland because we didn't have it, you know, too bad uh, compared to the other states, particularly Victoria. But it's just an interesting time to reflect back and say it just sort of teaches me all those lessons of it's the unexpected event. You know, like you said earlier in the in the in our chat, who expected, you know, who had coronavirus, you know, on their bingo card for, two, you know, 2020? You know, who had a 35% decline and a 35% bounce back? You know, it, it's stuff that you would see in a movie and go, oh, my God, that's so far-fetched. So I think that from my point of view, the interesting thing is this constant thing I have to do to myself, which is, Steve, you don't know what's going to happen, you know, and as sure as bloody night follows day where I think this is what's going to happen, I actually don't know what's going to happen, you know, and things like COVID, the whole raft of it, you know, the good bits, the bad bits, and then the good bits and then the bad bits, the whole raft of it is is itself um, a learning lesson. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, It's been, yeah, well, I can't remember a couple of years like it. So fourth principle, the risk hierarchy. So um, I guess as a recap, the risk hierarchy, individual stocks have more volatility than, for example, buying a diversified ETF that owns a whole country or a whole sector. Well, as we sort of mentioned before, particularly the NASDAQ and the, even um, the, the S&P 500 in the U.S., it's actually pretty tough for stock pickers at the moment, especially mm. people looking for value because, um, well, the index has, has become quite uh, top-heavy with a number of big outperformers, uh, but actually finding great companies at a decent value is very difficult. So how, how would you apply the risk hierarchy given the current environment? The, the thing there is there's sort of what I call selection bias. You know, like um, you, you and I know, um, you know, Charlie Bellello who puts out a, a weekly email and he says, you know, look at what's happening. You know, Peloton's fallen 55% and this one's fallen 42% and, you know, Beyond Meat's fallen 85 and we work and blah, blah, blah. But then there's the flip side of that by saying, um, you know, so-and-so's made 1,100%. I saw the other day where um, Bitcoin's made a million or something like that. But what I sort of say to people is, according to our principles, if you'd have bought in 2009, then you'd have made about 400% in the US market. Well, that'll do me any day of the week, thanks very much. And what I'm, what I'm saying is, yes, there will always be people who have made more than the index, but those people are, are fairly rare and... Will they do that for 20 or 30 years in a systematic way? For most of us, it's easier to buy an index, you know, like we talk about in our coaching programs, do it systematically, buy them when they're cheap and, you know, manage them through the whole cycle. 
it's and, and again, it gets back to this thing about bubbles where, you know, what you hear, Pete, is everybody talking about, you know, they've made shitloads of money in the last five or ten years. Okay, are you going to do it over 20 or 30? That's, you know, that's what I'm sort of talking about. And that's why we say to our clients, you know, we're talking about building wealth, you know, genuine wealth through property and stocks, not like, hey, dude, buy Bitcoin, you'll be rich in a year, and then, you know, hey, it's back over to you. Because I don't think you really learn anything by doing that. And and what I mean is you don't learn by selecting Apple or Amazon or, you know, I made it that, and and it's like, mate, how many people bought Amazon and it fell 95% and went, yeah, I'm a holder? Again, it's much easier, I think, to manage indexes with market timing, which I know is heresy for a lot of people, and you'll actually do, you know, you'll actually build wealth really well. Yeah, I think that's a key distinction. What we, you know, try to uh, coach people is the concept of building lifetime wealth. And, you know, like uh, take the example of uh, risk hierarchy in the the property market, um, you know, uh, mentioned on previous podcasts where, you know, we've bought some farmland, for example, a couple of Mm. times recently. And, you know, people say, oh, yeah, but you could do more. You know, that's old news and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I'm not, I'm not disputing. I'm not even disputing, you know, whether this will be the strongest performing asset class. All I know is that I can say with a high level of certainty that I, I know what the yield's going to be. I can pretty much map that out over the long run. And uh, it's an inheritance tax free, probably pass yeah. it on to the kids. You know, the security and the return of capital is as high as I can get. Now, you know, I'm not saying that you couldn't make a higher return in another asset class, but the I, I know where it sits on the risk hierarchy. And if you've got enough assets of that nature, well, sure, you can have a pump or, um, you know, some more speculative investments. I think as well with the risk hierarchy, the, the idea of buying individual companies, nothing wrong with that, of course, but I do um, seriously question whether people actually do the research when they invest in companies yeah, uh, yeah. quite often. I think people buy a company, uh, it doesn't perform well over two months. Oh, it was a terrible idea, you know, because they haven't really <laughs> researched it. The, the guys we mentioned, like Buffett and Munger, have been able to do that. But I think the average person generally speaking, doesn't really put the time and energy in to investing in companies, and therefore they don't have the conviction when the inevitable downturn comes. So yeah, uh, yeah. Good point. Uh, so we've got four more principles uh, to cover off here. Asset allocation, I think we already uh, touched on. It's probably not a bad time to be cautious, has really been the case over the whole year because the US valuations are so high. Uh, but it is important because uh, the risk of being too exposed uh, to a downturn when markets are at historic highs. Yeah, um, you know, it's pretty simple. The Cape's at 40, Tobin's Q's through the roof. Um, you know, pick pick whatever ratio you want. They're all bloody ringing the top. So if you want to risk a lot of money at the moment, well, you know, to be quite honest, the best of luck because history says that, you know, you're not going to do that well. As you just mentioned and as I mentioned before, if you want to build wealth over the long term, then it requires that you manage your money through, you know, through the cycle. Yes, absolutely. Now, the close cousin of um, the risk hierarchy is diversification and uh, not having all of your eggs in one basket, as the old saying goes. Now, as you mentioned, some markets around the world, uh, we talked to Tim Stamos the other day, you know, there are markets around the world that are quite mm. cheap. At the moment, it's largely emerging markets that are relatively cheap. Uh, there are some developed markets, uh, namely the UK, that are relatively speaking much better value than um, 
well, the US in particular. Uh, so diversification, I think that's almost self-explanatory. There are a few countries out there that do look very cheap. I think that one is almost fairly self-explanatory, have a good spread of investments, two to go. Uh, rebalancing, uh, so this is an important principle that seems to sometimes go by the wayside for a lot of people. But I guess the, the principle there is that when you've seen exceptional gains that you want to take some off the top because I guess generally speaking, you don't want to give it all back. Look, the critical point is always about rebalancing. And it's a constant argument with buy and hold people. Do you take money off the table or do you let it run? And even over the, you know, over 30 years or 40 years, well, let me give you an example. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the tweet where the guy said, you know, 770% over 25 years. You think, man, you know, that one 25-year stretch and you're rolling in it. But that doesn't mean it works out to about 9% compound per year. Right, I take away inflation of three. Okay, well, now we're down to six. Take away the geometric return, now we're down to about four. Right, so you look at it and then go, oh, well, actually, that's not that good. So rebalancing is not a, a subjective argument. The reality is that if mathematically, if you rebalance, you'll make more than buying and holding. Will there be periods where you don't? Absolutely. In an absolute raging bull market, like 2009 to 2021 in the US, why would you rebalance? Because you've made 450%. But my point stands, again, if you're building long-term wealth, you can't have a really good five years and then go, right, that's it, I'm pulling up stumps. Because even if you make a million bucks or two million bucks, you've then got to do something with it, you know, to keep it going. So rebalancing is really important because it allows you to, it, it sort of forces you systematically to buy low and sell high, right? And that's and that's really what it's about doing. Yeah, which indeed is the eighth and uh, possibly one of the most important principles to buy low and sell high. So, uh, and of course, there's always variations on these themes, but I think, uh, you know, quite often people uh, throw a few rocks in our direction and say, oh, how can you say, you know, you know, you should sell, you know, or blah, blah, blah. But um, I think what people don't necessarily always appreciate is that in one way, shape or form, people are following these eight principles. It's just they might actually uh, place less emphasis on some of them. But you know, everyone is a market timer, whether they realise it or not. You know, everybody is, you know, has has to address this question of, uh, buy low, sell high. You might not realise it. Your approach might simply be to to, to plough ahead in all markets, and you know that's fine if it's, if that's your system. But yeah, I guess uh, the the principle of buy low, sell high is really to wait for the fat pitch. Look for a great opportunity where you can actually invest at a good price, good value, and actually sit on an investment for a period of time uh, because you'll find the the returns are much more consistent. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I Look, you know, I always say to people, and again, this gets back to the idea of compounding. People say, oh, you want to compound, you just, you do it over the long term. No, sorry, you don't. It's the point. Compounding is bullshit. If I said to you, Pete, I'll offer you 2% compound per year. It's like, Steve, it's 36 years to double my money. There you go, Pete. That's a long time, right? What I'm saying is, no, 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 Pete, wait till it's, wait till you can get 10 or 12% per year you'll double your money in, you know, seven or eight years. And if you continue on in that vein, then you'll be really rich 
at the same point. And the and and it gets back to a point of saying, if you want to compound your money now with a cake ratio of 40, you are not going to compound it at a lot, right? And you'll probably lose quite a lot of money or you'll have a poor performance. If you sit here going, oh, Jesus, I've got all this money and nothing's happening, and then next year when the market crashes and you can and we can say, now you can compound at 10 or 11, that's when you'll be able to say, oh, thank God I've been in cash because now I'll get there a lot quicker. So it, it's, it's that thing I always say about compounding. It's not about time. People have got to learn that. It's only valuable if you can compound at a high rate over time. But the key is the high rate, not necessarily the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, when we spoke to Peter Simpson Morgan a few weeks back, it was a real eye-opener for me to, just to hear you know, someone who's you know, leading Fundy back in the day, you know, one of the most well-known stockbrokers, uh, mm. Perpetual and all the rest of it. And uh, it's just um, interesting to hear him say, like, as he gets older and wealthier, you know, focus is really on not losing money. And he said, look, yeah. your stage in life, uh, Pete, Steve, you'll get three, four more opportunities where the markets are on their knees and then, you know, mm. then you can swing for the fence. But at the other times, you know, you, you just want to be a bit more careful. And, you know, just even thinking back to 2007 to 2009, you know, as we always say, like, people are experts in hindsight. But I can remember at the time, you know, people, they they devastated themselves uh, with overexposure to the stock market, using leverage, selling at the lows because they thought the world would never recover. Um, basically, the opposite of what you should do as a, uh, an investor trying to build lifetime wealth. And I think it's, um, you know, when everybody's making money around you in speculative assets and stocks and all the rest of it, you know, happy days that people are making money. You just got to be careful. You've got a systematic approach to build wealth for the long term. So I think uh, that is about it for today, Steve. So Good luck with the uh, the 30 plus degrees in Brisbane and uh, hopefully we'll get some Ashes cricket sometime soon. If we win, then it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> if we're losing, I'll write to the government and tell them not to let you back in. <laughs> yeah, I don't hold out much hope. And I, I think at this stage, I don't even know where they're going to play, whether they can get into Western Australia or whether they even yeah, should. Yeah. So, Just on that, Pete, I think, the, um, who was it? Someone... Might have been the kook, uh, follow on Twitter, um, reading the play, great guy, Jared Conlon, said that England were $4.40 for a win, you know. So that's, I mean, you know, it's not bad having a lazy 50 or 100 at, at $4.40 for a win. Yeah, well, I think you can keep your $4.40, but I'd, I'd love <laughs> to be proven wrong. So, <laughs> so thanks for joining today and we'll catch you all on pod next week. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.